Micah is a relatively a relatively well-known book of the Old Testament for its um, frequent mentions in the New Testament. We'll look together in our time, to, time tonight at a couple of passages that make strong reference to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not just the life and ministry of Jesus that are referenced from the book of Micah in the New Testament. It's also uh, from this period and events that seem to be wrapped up in uh, the message of Micah that are referred to in uh, the slaughter of the innocents in the Matthew narrative as Herod sends out his men to have put to death those male children to and under in the region of, of Bethlehem. The book of Micah, the prophecy of Micah, uh, features significantly in uh, the birth narrative of Matthew and is played out in many ways in the birth narrative of Luke chapter 2 as well. Micah is kind of a reluctant prophet at one point, called away from his home to leave familiar surroundings and to go and to preach judgment both to the north and the south. The primary focus of the book of Micah is in the southern kingdom, but there is a word for the northern kingdom as well. Micah is prophesying from around the year 740 to around the year 700. If you're an Old Testament historian, you might remember that the northern kingdom collapses um, to the Assyrian Empire in 722. So Micah comes on the scene to make a declaration against the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes of Israel. He continues to minister throughout that period of time, it seems, at least as he designates his uh, prophetic ministry in verses 1 and following of Micah chapter 1. And so it's during that time that Micah comes to preach. He brings not only a word of judgment against the northern tribes, but also a word of warning against the south as well. He warns Israel that their destruction is coming. And he warns Judah in the south that if they don't get their act together, their end is going to look very much like that of the ten northern tribes of Israel in the north. Look to Micah chapter 1 and verse number 1. Here the Bible says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morashite, what he saw regarding Samaria and Jerusalem in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So that helps us to place, to date, the ministry and the leadership of Micah the prophet. There are really three outstanding themes in the book of Micah that I want us to talk about, but the book divides rather neatly into two parts. There are three themes, but really two major parts. There are two great declarations of judgment that are made in the book of Micah. The first is from chapter 1 to chapter 5, and the second is chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 7 is the end of the book, just seven chapters in the book of Micah. One of the most refreshing and encouraging and hope-inspiring aspects of Micah's prophecy is that in spite of the severity of judgment that is promised both in the first round of judgment and the second round of judgment, both of those sections end with a word of tremendous hope. It's in those two sections that New Testament writers draw from to point our attention to Jesus and what he affords us as our Messiah, as the Savior who lives and dies for us. A major theme in the book of Micah is, as is often the case in the prophets, the sins of the people. The people are racked with sin. In fact, there's a great deal of similarity between the experience of the people in Micah's day and that of our own day. They're choosing preachers that say the things they want them to say. 
They're, they're choosing their preachers like people choose their psychic, right? Like you want, if, you're, if you're in the market for a psychic, which has never made much sense to me, you're looking for one that will have some positive things to say about your future, right? You do not want to choose a preacher by the same criteria you might choose your psychic. You choose your preacher like you would choose your doctor. You want the doctor to be honest with you, to tell you the truth. If there's a bad diagnosis, if the prognosis is not good, you want your doctor to be forthright and honest. Now, an easy job as a physician would be to sit there and tell people what they wanted to hear all day, but it wouldn't benefit anyone in the end, and it wouldn't benefit the patient either. Michael warns them against having this kind of itching ears syndrome where they're seeking out prophets who say what they want to hear rather than what they need desperately to hear in the moment. Apostasy is a major issue among the people. The prophets and the priests had forsaken faithful ministry. They had drifted away. Both prophet and priest had given themselves over to unrighteousness in a variety of different ways. They were willing to sell their counsel. They were willing to make judgment on the basis of bribes. Of bribes. In verse 11, it's really Micah shifts the responsibility for that back to the people. He said, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 11, Micah says, If a man of wind comes and invents lies, that's an Old Testament way of saying if someone who was full of hot air come, if, if he comes and he invents lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer, he would be just the, pe the preacher for this people. They're seeking out the kind of counsel that they want. Maybe you're like me and you hear of preaching ministries or you're exposed to a preaching ministry that is clearly an error. Now, I'm not above being an error from time to time. I'll make my fair share of mistakes. Uh, you just give me time if you haven't witnessed it yet. But I mean those that are given to error, who in substance, who the very foundation of their ministry is in conflict with the teaching of the scripture. That frustrates you in all likelihood. It frustrates me a great deal as well. But I think the thing that is most bothersome about that is the ease with which those ministries tend to draw great multitudes to themselves. That there are so many people who would be willing to give an ear to a message that is so much in conflict with the teaching of the scripture. You see, this, if, you want a, if you want a good picture of this, an illustration of this, go to a Christian bookstore and just peruse the offerings in the Christian bookstore, most of which could not be further from the actual message of the gospel, most of which originate from pastors, preachers, apostles, and prophets, at least as they describe themselves, who have little idea, it seems, of what the Scripture actually teaches with regards to any number of issues, but fundamentally with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Micah shifts, shifts a great deal of the responsibility for the apostasy among the priests and the prophets from the priests and prophets back to the people who might have called them to account for their misrepresentation of the message of God. The prophets, it seems, did their work according to their pay. They were willing to prophesy something good for those who paid them well, and they were willing to declare judgment against the one who withheld any payment 
at all. If you look over to chapter 3 and verses 5 through 11, we'll see a further discussion of these false prophets and how the misery and the ministry of the prophets had such an influence on the people as well. Verse 5, the Bible says, This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, in other words, when they're paid well, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. In, in other words, their commitment is not to truth. Their commitment is to, is to self-service. Their commitment is to their betterment and not to truth. And we, we really are in a place where, present day now, 21st century, American church, where we really have to be careful here, right? There, there, there are always times when we're, we're always called to stand and to speak the truth. And, and, I, and I think we're at a place where standing and speaking the truth is going to alienate people on both sides of us anymore, right? It's, it's not just that we have these safe zones, these echo chambers where we can speak the truth, the truth and there's a certain degree of, of safety there. There's conflict and disruption and confusion about what the truth is, often within the context of what should be the faithful church. In verse 6, the scripture says, Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. The seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths, because there will be no answer from God. The, the penalty for the, for the proliferation plurifer, of false prophecy is that, that God will be silent. There, there'll be no prophet among them. There'll be no voice among them. Now, now, think in terms of where we are. I've had this conversation with preacher friends now for about 10 years. When, when Adrian Rogers died, and then when Billy Graham died after him, there, there is no voice like that for Christian folk in America. There, there are voices, right? There are men that I have a great deal of respect for whose ministries nourish my soul and encourage me, who are exemplary in their ways, who, you, who can be counted on to do what is right, who will walk faithfully. And I teeter back and forth between whether that is an altogether bad thing or there might be some positives that can come from it. The positive is we don't run the risk of um, being beholden to a singular ministry to feed our souls. There's lots of faithful pastors in rural churches and smaller churches in urban areas all across the land. But there just may be something to the absence of a single voice in a culture that can be counted on, that can be relied upon by all people, even those who wouldn't claim the name of Christ, know in their heart of hearts, we can look to this person and that person Will, will be the Christian voice. He will represent and represent well the convictions of Christian folk. God says, Micah, because of the rebelliousness of the people, because they've had this itching ear syndrome, and because the priest and the prophets have sought their own interest over the message of God, I'm going to turn off the spigot. You'll hear nothing from me for a season. I'm going to turn it off. There'll be no word of prophecy, no divination. Their mouths will be closed. There will be no answer from God. In verse 8, the Bible says, As for me, however, I'm filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. 
Listen to this, leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert everything that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with injustice. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Her priests teach for payment, and her prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Now this seems to me a fundamental error for the people of God in every generation that snubs its nose at the standard of God and goes the wayward way. The problem in Jeremiah's day, you may remember, was that they believed that Jerusalem being in the midst of the Holy Land, their living in the Holy Land, the presence of the temple among them, meant that God could never bring judgment against them. The issue here in Micah's day is that they have convinced themselves that because they are, after all, Israel, because, again, we live in the promised land, that God's judgment can never come against us. And if we're not careful, we can slip into this kind of presumptuousness that suggests that somehow, some way, because we are attached to the local church, because we have given intellectual assent to the existence of God and His Son Jesus and all that He did on the cross, we know the historical data associated with the gospel, that there's no way that the judgment of God can come against us either. And woe unto us when we peddle in that kind of foolishness. Micah says, be cautious and be careful. His word here is for those who would acknowledge the existence and the goodness of God. That we cannot afford to slough off his standard for our life. That we are to embrace his word. That we are to bring ourselves under the authority of his word. To walk faithfully with him all of our days. There's a degree of, of fear and trepidation that we live with. We have within our being the fear of the Lord. A word of warning against him. And an understanding of his great might, his great power to exact judgment against us. Whether it be disciplinary judgment, he brings chastisement on those he loves. Or the greatest of judgment when his wrath is poured out in a torrent, in a flood that overwhelms and consumes us. There ought to be an abiding fear of the Lord in all of our hearts. It's the sins of the people uh, that, that provoke this word of judgment against uh, Judah and Israel in Micah's day. Now, there's another issue under the banner of the sins of the people that I, I, think's, I think we have to touch on here because it is so prevalent in the book of Micah. There is this matter, and I used to be able to use this terminology without this raising the hackles of people. It's become so, there's so much politically that's connected to it now, but I really don't know another phrase to put to it. Micah is addressing social injustices. He's addressing injustice within Judah society, within Israel society. And I, I raise that, one, because you can't read the book of Micah without acknowledging the presence of those kinds of issues in Judah and Israel. But also to say, we need to be careful about how we adjudicate these issues as Christian folk as well. Back in the early part of the 20th century, uh, there began to be a rise in, in liberal theology in a movement called the social gospel movement, where there was the conviction that what we really need to focus our efforts on is improving the earthly lives and experiences of those around us. 
And over the course of time, there was a, a, a union made between liberal the theology, social gospel theology, and, and, and social justice efforts. And so what happened in response to that is conservative, Bible-believing fundamentalists said, we're not going to go in that direction because we know in our very heart of hearts that the real answer to the problems of man is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is right. But in, an, in, a, in a move that was, in the end, an overreaction, there was a cutting ourselves off from, it, from involving ourselves in bring, bringing resolution or remedy to these kinds of social injustices. With all of the conversation that's happening politically today and even discussions that are going back and forth within our denomination, what I want to say to you tonight is that the pursuit of justice within our society is not in conflict with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not an either-or business. Ultimately and finally, the answer to all our concerns is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that same gospel that cause us to love God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, cause us at the same time to love our neighbor even as ourselves. So as you hear all of these conversations, there's a great deal of noise right now. Be, be careful that our response to that is not the early, early 20th century overreaction where we cut ourselves off from any kind of engagement or concern or interest in the well-being or the welfare of those around us. But don't, that, don't let that supplant or replace your confidence, your conviction that in the end, only the gospel of Jesus Christ can remedy all our needs. Y'all tracking with me this evening? So Micah is addressing the sins of the people. He's addressing, addressing these matters of injustice from within the culture. I, I want us to go all the way to the back end of the book of Micah to chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. And I want us to note here that the judgment that God intends to bring against the people of Israel is not a judgment without cause. Even here in Micah, where the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is kindled fiercely hot against his people, that God is not just bringing judgment as some arbitrary God who delights in the destruction of his subjects. Even when judgment comes, there, there is a purpose beyond the judgment itself, a purpose for the good of God's people, for the purification of God's people, for the advancement of his kingdom, and for the glory of his name. Here in verse 15, Micah 7 and 15, God speaks a word of hope and encouragement to Israel and to Judah. He says, I will perform miracles for them as in the days of your exodus from the land of Egypt. I will, I will bring about an exodus again. You can't, you can't see this in the New Testament because of the way the New Testament is translated. But in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he meets with Moses and Elijah. And Peter and James and John are there and they're watching. And Luke records for us that they were describing his exodus the English translates that word as his departure. They were discussing the new exodus. They were discussing the fulfillment of this very promise that Jesus would do again in a fuller sense what Moses did in leading the children of Israel up from the promised land. 
In essence, what is said here is that what God has done in the past, he would do again for his people on the other side of this season of purification and judgment. In verse 16, the Bible says, Nations will see and be ashamed of all their power. They'll put their hands over their mouths and their ears will become deaf. They'll lick the dust like a snake and they'll come trembling out of their hiding places like reptiles slithering on the ground. They will tremble in the presence of Yahweh our God. They will stand in awe of you. Those nations that wag their finger and mock and scorn Israel in Micah's day as they are carried away captive, plundered by the Assyrians, they will one day stand in awe of what God does in the midst of his people. And I would say in a season in world history where Christians are being persecuted far more often than at any other time in Christian history, that there will come a day when those nations, when those persecutors who would mock and scorn and wag their fingers at Christian folk for their conviction that Jesus is the living Lord, they will one day stand in awe of what God does again in the midst of his people. Verse 18, the Bible says, who is a God like you? removing iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. This judgment is to have a purifying effect. What will be left in the end is a faithful remnant. We've observed through Christian history and even through the Old Testament how God works judgment in order to purify and to sanctify his people. Over the course of time, the wheat and the chaff become mixed together. God intervenes in human history from time to time to separate the wheat from the chaff, to make us better effective at gospel advancement in our sojourn here. Ultimately, there's coming a day when the wheat and chaff are finally separated one from the other, one cast into a lake of fire and brimstone, one gathered together in the barns of holy heaven. But God intervenes even in our earthly experience, doesn't he, to bring about a refining end to sanctify his people. I will forevermore be convinced that among God's purposes in the COVID-19 pandemic in much of the world was to sanctify and to purify his church. There will be, you mark it down, there will be a lot less people who come back to the local body on the other side of this quarantine than there were that were a part of the local body on the, on the front end. And, and it will in the end among us, but they went out from us because they were never really of us in the first place. This judgment will have a sanctifying effect in the end on churches all over the world. But brothers and sisters, that is not the only way that God works to sanctify our life. That's not the only manner in which God might move in judgment, even against his people, to bring about this kind of purification. What Micah is describing here is a scenario in which Israel has been separated from Israel in the end. The true Israel, refined like silver and precious gold on the other side, will be the Israel God intends that they will be. They'll stand a faithful remnant, the recipient of a great inheritance. On the other side, the Bible continues, he doesn't hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. God delights in in faithful love. If we don't have this arbitrary God in heaven, this wicked ta taskmaster who's celebrating our destruction, he's not like us, celebrating the failures and the collapses of our enemies. When someone comes against us, against us and they, they get what we believe to be their just desserts, 
the sinner in all of us wants to smirk a little bit at that. But God is rich in mercy. God is rich in mercy. And although it is true that God delights in justice, there are times when the service of justice serves to honor and to glorify God. He's not, he's not the bloodthirsty taskmaster that many would cast him as being. Rather, Micah says that his delight is in faithful love. That is covenant love. That is loving kindness. That is love one bound to another. That he is bound to his people. That his people are bound to him. He delights in the covenant relationship that exists between himself and his subjects. In verse 19, the Bible says, He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days long ago. Even when the judgment come, Mike, comes, Micah says, we can hold fast to the promises of God's salvation. The judgment that Israel experienced did not nullify the promise that God had made to Abraham. The judgment that Israel experienced didn't nullify the promises that God had made to Moses. The judgment that Israel experienced did not nullify the promises that God had made to David. And brothers and sisters, the judgments that we may bear with in our little life here do not nullify the promises that God has made to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is always working in judgment as a means to an end, namely that the people of God would be sanctified and purified, that a remnant, a strong remnant would be established as his covenant people, a people through whom he might work powerfully to advance the gospel among us in this world and to bring great glory to his name. Here's a third key theme. We could talk about this theme from Micah chapter 7, but what I'd like us to do is to back up in our Bibles to Micah chapter 4. The hope of God's people has always been in Bethlehem. That's what Micah describes in our passage. And that's what we know to be true on this side of the gospel. We could look at a number of passages in Micah. It is flush with references to the life of Jesus. We could look at Micah 5 and verse number 2 where the scripture says, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, yet one will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Therefore, he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of Yahweh, in the majestic name of of Yahweh his God they will live securely for then great for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth he will be their peace this is the passage from which Matthew is drawing in Matthew chapter 2 there's one coming from Bethlehem of Ephrathah one who will be our savior from that teeny tiny town I understand that Bethlehem is kind of a bustling city today but it was a teeny tiny and very insignificant city in its own day, not even a city, and little more than a village, but it was that spot on the map that God would begin his greatest work of salvation. Look back to chapter 4 and verse number 1. There the Bible says, In the last days on the mountain of the Lord's house will be established, in the last days the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains, 
and will be raised above the hills. People will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among many peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They'll beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they'll never again train for war. But each man will sit under his grapevine and under his fig tree with no one to frighten him. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this. Though all the peoples each walk in the name of their gods, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. On that day, the Lord's declaration is this, I will assemble the lame and gather the scattered, those I have injured. I'll make the lame into a remnant, those far removed into a strong nation. Then the Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from this time on and forever. Are you reading that as we ought to read it through the lens of the gospel? You have examples of the kind of peace that's brought to bear by the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus that are relevant to Micah's audience. This notion of drawing together nations and being an arbitrator of disagreements among the nations would have, uh, that makes sense to Micah's audience, right? You think of someone who sits down as a neutral party in order to help to mediate conflicts that exist between nations. They'll beat their, their plows and and, and, and their, uh, their swords, they'll, they'll turn them into agricultural equipment. They'll, they'll utilize the weapons of warfare for other purposes. They'll no longer need to fight amongst themselves anymore because of what Jesus will do for us. Sitting, each man sitting under his own grapevine is a reference to a certain level of, of prosperity, although I don't believe this to be a reference to literal prosperity, at least in this life. It, it, would, it would have spoken clearly to Micah's audience. There's going to come a day when we don't have to worry about how we will eat or drink anymore. God will provide so lavishly for us. And here's how we see those things fulfilled even at the present hour. Although there continues to be a great uproar and conflict within the world, there has never been a time of perfect peace among the nations since the time of Jesus, and there will never be until Christ comes to cleanse and claim his church forever. There is, in spite of that, in contradiction to that, on the other side of that, this kingdom to which we belong, in which God has knit us together with men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation, where there's no longer any need for this kind of fighting. Arbitration has been made. We have been signed and sealed and delivered by the same covenant. By faith in Christ, he has, he has knit us Together, You have a further example here of just how different the kingdom it, into which Christ has called us is from the kingdom of this world. We belong to the kingdom that has been described in this passage. And although we have an interest in the well-being of the world around us, because God has called us to pursue the peace and prosperity of the Babylon in which he has placed us, our primary concern is with this kingdom. Brothers and sisters, when you watch the nightly news tonight and are tempted to be sore and distressed about the condition of the world around us, remember that our citizenship is not in the kingdom depicted in the 24-hour news cycle. Our citizenship is in the kingdom depicted in Micah chapter 5. 
that we belong to Jesus. And in spite of all of these horrible things that we see swirling around us, God is doing some pretty incredible things among us. And it's not limited to Mackinvale and Bahalia in Hernando, Mississippi either. All over this world, even tonight, and certainly on every Lord's Day, there are people like me and you, only their skin looks different and their dialect is different and their language would confound us, who are whispering in that strange tongue of the goodness and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, although earthly strangers to us, are brothers and sisters in Christ. In unseen and sometimes unknowable ways, God is at work establishing his kingdom in spite of the craziness that goes on in the world around us. Rest in that tonight, brothers and sisters. Aren't you glad that Jesus is good and powerful, strong? You know, some of the names that are so common uh, for Jesus, we, don't, we, we almost never sit and, and process what that means for us, that he is our Emmanuel, that God is with us through Jesus, not just in his earthly ministry, not, not, not just in a day that is to come. Jesus is with us in the Spirit now. I was reading through, I'm on a rabbit trail now, but I've got a couple minutes to rabbit trail here, but I, I've been teaching through the Gospels. And you, you always teach the Gospels in two sets. You teach Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you teach John, because I think most recognize that John is written sometime later. And I think the gospel writers are responding to issues that were arising at their time, just a few years, a few decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And by the time you get to the gospel of John, there's a shift in the way John talks about, one, the Holy Spirit, and two, the return of Jesus. Now, John is just as insistent as Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus is coming again but perhaps responding to the confusion and maybe even a degree of frustration that Jesus had not yet come again as he promised, John shifts a bit and helps us understand that though Christ has forcefully stated that he will come again, and make no mistake about it, he will, that he is indeed already returned through the indwelling presence of his Holy Spirit. There's so much focus on the work of the Spirit. Christ is in us and among us. The power of the resurrection abides within our members. So we've no reason to dismay, right? We can bear with the sufferings and the indignities and the frustrations and even the heavy temptation of life in the here and now because Jesus is our Lord and our King and there's no one whose authority can trump that. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance to be able to be together with your people. God, I pray that you would encourage us through your word, that you would nourish our souls, God, that we would leave with an excitement about what you've done for us through Jesus. God, I pray that, that you would remind us, Lord, of the, of the great deposit that you've made, God, that the Spirit indeed lives within us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Help us to walk worthy. Help us to walk with confidence. Help us to walk boldly. And help us, Lord, to walk not so much for ourselves, but to seek and to save the well-being, the salvation of those around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.